you want to grab your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 9, that's where we're going to be at. And it's been a couple of weeks since we've been able to uh, do a podcast. It's um, partly because of a move. Um, the Lord has opened up an opportunity for us to um, move to Georgia, and we are currently pastoring uh, at a church in Georgia. And so for the last two weeks, it's been nothing but unpacking boxes uh, and everything of that nature. So it's been rather hard to get everything together, but we're hoping to get back up on a regular schedule here um, to do uh, our podcast. And so we're going to look at just a couple of verses today. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's just going to be two verses um, in chapter 9, verses 32 through 34. And we're going to be looking at the mute man. Um, and even though it's just a couple of verses and probably won't be the longest podcast in the world, I still think there's a lot of great information here that we can be able to uh, attain um, that will be beneficial. Uh, again, I don't think that uh, we can just kind of miss Scripture uh, just because of the shortness of it or because of the um, there may not be maybe as much information as we would think, but I think that uh, we can really um, see some good information here uh, concerning how that, even in today's culture, uh, serving the Lord is, is uh, a challenge at times, and especially when there is a, uh, there's a group of people, for instance, that are just really anti everything about uh, Jesus. I think we can see some stuff from this passage right here to give us some wisdom to be able to walk through it. And um, in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 32, it says, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. Now, one of the thoughts is that, uh, going back to the two blind men that were healed, that uh, some people that had brought the blind men had actually... Uh, also brought this demon-possessed man. Now, we don't necessarily have um, the verification for that. That's a good possibility where it says that they brought to him a man. So this could be a continuation of the previous story. Not 100% sure, but it's also um, one that we can see. I don't know if you want to call it some amazement, but we have previously talked about some uh, demon-possessed uh, persons, um, and they were very violent um, to the point that no one would come around. So that also shows us here that there is apparently, from what we can read into Scripture here, um, different possessions that take place. So this man must not have been very violent if he is being brought by other personnel. Now, the thought here is that the man's muteness, his inability to speak, um, was was brought on by the demon possession. Now, deafness usually um, comes along with the inability to speak. <clears throat> now, uh, accidents, you know, looking back at this period of time, it wasn't like they had the best medical, uh, you know, opportunities. So there would be uh, some situations to where there could be um, some diseases, there could be accidents, whatever it may have been, um, could have led to the uh, hearing loss. Um, and usually when there was hearing loss, the um, inability to speak would go along with it uh, because since they couldn't hear, uh, to be able to um, get the sounds and the words and the, the, the pronunciation of the words, there was oftentimes that deafness would come along with it. So, uh, however, in this situation, um, we are able to see that, uh, again, demon possession is probably what caused this. And to me, again, that's interesting, being that there was no violence with this man, being able to be led and... Seemingly no problem. He had no problem being able to um, be with people in the community. Um, and so there's a completely different level of possession here than in the, one of the previous ones we had talked about. 
So in verse 33, it says, And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It has never, uh, it was never seen like this in Israel. So we've got a couple of things here. Number one, we're not told how this demon was cast out. We're not told if Jesus went and laid hands on the, the uh, person. We're not told if Jesus just simply commanded that the demon come out. Uh, it just says that the demon was cast out. Also, and this is important, we're not told anything about the man's faith. Whether the man was saved or not, whether this man uh, you know, began to follow Jesus, um, we have no idea. Now, as far as we know, again, we just have to take what Scripture tells us. Um, there was no, there was no salvation that took place here. There was no um, pr- uh, profession of faith in any way, um, and and I think one of the things that we can really do damage with is just trying to read into the scripture that just because someone had a demon cast out of them, they were automatically saved. That's not necessarily the case. And so what we have to do is we have to be able to just look at this uh, for what it was, and that. This man received simply a physical healing of the demon being cast out. There was nothing else that kind of come along with that. Um, now, we would hope and pray that based on um, this physical healing that took place and the demon being cast out, that it would cause this man uh, to be able to seek out and hopefully develop a relationship with Jesus. Um, but we're not, uh, we're not told anything about that. And so that also leads us Again, to understand that this passage then uh, really isn't so much about the casting out of the demon. Uh, We've got to look at what the theme of the context here may be, and we're going to get into that in verse 34. And I think a lot of times we, we look at the healing itself, and we think that the healing is what it's all about. And even though the healing is something that is magnificent, um, and the healing is something that would be vitally important, it's not the theme of the passage here that we're looking at. Um, But we also see that not only was this uh, demon cast out, but we see that the the multitude marveled, saying it, uh, it was never seen like this in Israel. So the word marveled means to become greatly amazed and astounded or to be overcome with awe. So, this is important for us to understand, and I think that this is also something that maybe we're not looking at as, as much as we need to when it comes to Scripture. Just because these people marveled, it really isn't that big of a deal. And, and I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I mean by that. When you look at Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, there was always significant crowds following him. They followed Jesus all over the place. And I think one of the greatest examples we can find uh, from this is with the feeding uh, of the 5,000. Now, again, if, if we uh, take into consideration what's being said here, the feeding of the 5,000, the, the 5,000 would have been mainly just counting the men. That didn't include the women, the children, um, so this could have this would have been a very much more significant number than just the five thousand, and these people were following Jesus. Uh, they had uh, been listening to his preaching, and they witnessed one of the uh, most amazing miracles that you could imagine in being able to feed this large number with five loaves of bread and two fish. However, we see no record of anyone confessing Jesus as Lord in that miracle, in that situation. These people, that is a good example of what normally happened. These people would would follow Jesus for what they could get from him. Very rarely did they follow Jesus because they truly wanted to surrender to him. There would be... uh, one way to say it, and I think John MacArthur said it this way, he said, they only admired him from a distance and for what they could get from him and that they would not surrender or identify with him. And so what it really boiled down to is you had a lot of people who were seeing Jesus do some amazing things and they could hear about these healings, they could hear about these miracles, they wanted to witness them, 
Um, they wanted to be able to see him and they would marvel at the miracles that would take place. But the problem is, is and I hate, I kind of hate saying it this way, but to them it was more of a magic show. They looked at it, they saw the miracle, they marveled at the magic that took place, if you wanted to call it that way. And then they were like, okay, show us something else. Show us something bigger, show us something better. They never were willing to accept Jesus for who he was and accept Jesus and identify with him. They just wanted to see what Jesus could do and they wanted to be able to see what Jesus could give them. And so just because the crowds marveled and just because the crowds followed him didn't mean anything. Uh, Crowds mean absolutely nothing. And I think that's one of the things that irritates me the most about uh, the church in America today we equate success with numbers and we equate um, pastors that have churches that are large as being better pastors than pastors of churches that maybe run 50 or 100 and I think that that's ridiculous because I think that the faithfulness of the pastor at the church of 50 is just as good, if not better, than the faithfulness of the pastor of the church running 2,000. But because that church is running 2,000 and they send in more money and because they have bigger congregations or whatever it may be, or bigger crowds, we automatically think they're better pastors and we think that we need to listen to what they're saying because they're smarter than everybody else. That's not necessarily the case. I think Francis Chan made a great statement. He said, you could have a charismatic speaker in a good band and build a great crowd. And just because you have a great crowd doesn't mean that the gospel is going forth. And so I I think that one of the things that we need to pull back from when it comes to the American church and our culture today is equating success with numbers. Um, And I think Jesus got that very easily because uh, very rarely did you see Jesus being affected by the crowds. And I'll tell you why that's important. Because you think about it from this standpoint. I've been blessed to preach in front of two people. And I've been blessed to preach in front of uh, between 800 and 1,000 people. And I will tell you this, whether you like to admit it or not, there is a difference that comes into play. And a lot of pastors will fall into this category. And I'm going to tell you, I fell into it myself as a young pastor. And I pray that, you know, I've seen the error in my ways and been able to, uh, that stuff doesn't affect me anymore. But I can still remember as a very young pastor, I was caught up in this whole thing about numbers mattered. And I can remember that I thought it was a bigger deal to preach in front of the 800 to 1,000 than it was to preach in front of the two. And the problem that we have with that is we then began to allow pride and arrogance to come in. We began to think that we have reached you know, this pinnacle, we believe that uh, we have reached the, the area where we need to go. And I'll tell you, one of the things that humbled me probably more than anything was uh, doing uh, a mission trip in Africa when we were going to uh, unreached people um, that had never heard of the gospel. Uh, I remember that I went into a specific village and we uh, talked with some of the villagers and asked if we could be able to, uh, in essence, have a service to where we could uh, preach to them uh, Jesus. And there wasn't that many people there, but we met in a little building with one light bulb. And to me, that was one of the best church services I've ever been in in my life. Uh, and it had nothing to do with notoriety. It had nothing to do with whether or not people would recognize you. It had nothing to do with numbers. And I think that what we see with Jesus oftentimes is Jesus did the ministry regardless of the amount of people that were near. He was just as intent doing ministry with a Samaritan woman at the well as he was when he was standing on the hillsides ministering to twenty to 30,000 people, feeding them with five loaves and two fish. And I think that's important for us to understand because uh, I'm, I'm fearful of the, the church in America today that numbers and crowds are what is so significant to us, that that matters more than anything, and that we care more about making sure that our numbers um, show the success than we do about the actual ministry that takes place. Um, So again, I say all of that to say that just because the crowds marveled really didn't amount to a whole lot. So that's something that's important. And Jesus didn't let it affect him either. 
And so we go into verse 34, which I believe is the crux and the, 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 the real emphasis of the text. And it says, but the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, there is so much that's important in this specific verse. Um, number one, we see that the Pharisees could not deny the miracle that had just taken place. The people witnessed it. The Pharisees witnessed it. So they were unable to deny the miracle that took place in front of them. We also see that they were making it clear that they were showing Jesus as their enemy. That Jesus was an enemy to Judaism. And because they were the be-all, end-all in Judaism, they were the... um, the head honchos, if you will, of Judaism, that because Jesus was their enemy, um, that he was an enemy of not only their religious beliefs, but an enemy of God. And so this is what they had to do. They saw that the people were marveling. And again, this is what I want you to understand. This is so important to see. Jesus was not affected by the crowds whatsoever, but the Pharisees were. See, the crowds marveled at Jesus, and it didn't faze him one bit. But when the Pharisees saw that the crowds marveled at Jesus, they got absolutely scared to death because they thought they were going to lose these people. And they had to quickly find a way to be able to determine whether these people were true followers of Judaism or not. And so in order to keep their people, in order to keep the crowd, they were going to have to make sure that they come out with a very bold statement. And this is really what took place here. So because they made Jesus the enemy of Judaism, in essence making Jesus the enemy of God, they couldn't deny the miracle that took place, so they were going to deny the source. They were not going to allow Jesus to use God and credit God in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So what they wanted to do was instead of saying that Jesus used the power of God in order to cast out this demon, they wanted to make sure that they... uh, they attested the power to Satan and that they were saying that Jesus was being powered, if you will, by the enemy, by Satan himself. Now, you, you, you think about this and say, how in the world was they, were they going to get by with this? Because they were playing on the ignorance of the people. See, one of the things that I think is important as well is a good pastor... And a good spiritual leader is not going to try to hide uh, knowledge from their sheep, from their congregation. And I'll give you an example, for instance, with me. I don't ever want the congregation that I pastor to think that I'm smarter than I am. And what I mean by that is this. When When I do sermons and when I do Bible studies and I do teaching opportunities, I make all of my notes available to anyone that wants them. I let them realize I didn't come up with a lot of these original thoughts myself. I use commentaries. Um, I I try to speak with other pastors and gain their knowledge on certain things. And, you know, there's some things that through the power of the Holy Spirit I'm able to kind of write down and and maybe they're a blessing to somebody. But I don't take anything that I write down as something that is uh, brand new. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So I don't think that I'm creating any new thoughts um, that, you know, somebody else hasn't already thought. And so with that, I want people to be able to gain as much knowledge as they can because I don't want sheep completely relying upon me. I want them to be able to study scripture for themselves. I want them to be able to deepen in their walk with Jesus on their own. I want to be able to come alongside and help them and support them and take them uh, maybe a little bit deeper than what they're able to go on their own. But I don't want them to be completely relying upon me. I say that because the Pharisees, that's what they truly wanted. They wanted the people to be completely relying upon them. They had the text, and what they would do is they would read it, and then they would interpret it to the people, and the people took their word for it. 
And what that does is it causes a level of ignorance to be amongst the people that they they only have the knowledge that the Pharisees are willing to give them. And so the question now arises, are the Pharisees actually giving them good sound doctrine, good sound information? Or are the Pharisees keeping that information to themselves and only giving the people what they, they maybe feel the people need? So that way the people are continuing to be reliant upon them. And so I say all of that to say <clears throat> that the people were only able to believe a small amount of what was going on here. And so for the Pharisees to say that Jesus was doing this, he was casting out demons in the power of Satan, they may not have known any different. They may have looked at it and said, oh my goodness, you know, the Pharisees are... Um, telling us this information so it has to be true and so that's very important for them uh, because now what they've got is not only are they making this outlandish statement but now they got the crowd going along with it and that's really important because what that would do then is that would give them their confidence back because what i want you to understand is that jesus just blew their confidence out the water By Jesus doing what he did in front of these people, he caused the Pharisees' confidence to just go straight down the drain. And so they had to come up with a way in order to get their confidence back, and their confidence then could be gotten back by the crowd coming alongside them. And so they played on the ignorance of the people and made the comment, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, this makes absolutely no sense. When you sit down and you think about it, why in the world would a demon possess someone and then another demon come alongside or Satan himself come alongside and say, you know what, I don't like the fact that I have got complete control over this person, so I'm going to cast the demon out of here and free this person. That is absolute nonsense. That is the antithesis of the purpose of Satan. Satan wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can. He wants to control as many people as he can. For these Pharisees to sit down and say that Satan is casting out demons in the power of Satan goes against the very nature and character of Satan himself. It would be the same difference. This would be an equivalency from a Christian standpoint. God is going to take away the salvation that he freely gave to someone. And that goes against every nature and character of God and against Scripture itself. Why in the world would Jesus freely die on a cross to give man salvation and then just because he wanted to, uh, just to go in and take uh, salvation away? It makes no sense whatsoever. The same way that it makes no sense that Satan would have control over someone with a demon possession and then pull that demon possession away and free that person. And so the Pharisees, in their quick fix of trying to figure out how to take care of this situation, they've actually made it that much worse. Because what they've done is they have uh, backed themselves into a corner. But here's the caveat. If the people are ignorant and don't see that, then they're fine. And what they've done is they have allowed themselves to, uh, if you will, develop the people to where they only get the information that the Pharisees want them to have. So the Pharisees, by making this comment, don't look very, very bad because the people are too ignorant to see the falsehood of what they're saying. And so what we're seeing from this is... In, in Matthew writing this, is he showing us the detriment of religiosity. These Pharisees only cared about their religion. They didn't care about people being healed. They didn't care about people being freed from demon possession. They didn't care about anything other than themselves. Religion is self-centered. That's a really good statement to understand. Religion is very self-centered. A relationship with Jesus is not. It's about surrender. And so what we're finding from these Pharisees is that they're showing their self-centeredness because they don't care about this man being freed from demon possession. They don't care about anything whatsoever. The only thing that they care about is whether or not they are going to be able to keep their power and position. And so... It's a scary proposition, but I I dare say that we're seeing it as much today in American Christianity as we are here with the Pharisees. 
We're seeing a lot of pastors today that care more about their kingdom than they do about the kingdom of God. They care more about their crowd that they've gathered and the numbers that they have and making sure that they stay on the religious elite category than they do about anything else. And what we're finding here is that Jesus says, listen, don't worry if the crowds marvel at you or not. It's about faithfulness. It's about making sure that you stay faithful. and It's about making sure that God gets the glory. And so I hope that this has encouraged you today. I hope it's challenged you. I pray that you continue to stay in the Word uh, daily. And we look forward to jumping into our next podcast. And I pray most of all, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, that you would find someone today that you know is a, is a Christ follower and a Bible-believing Christian, and that you would talk to them about what it means to be saved. I pray if you are a follower of Christ that you go out and you share the gospel with somebody today and that you go out and you make a difference and you make a kingdom impact. We look forward to our next time together in our podcast. And in so doing, I pray that you've been challenged and get deeper in the Word. I pray this finds you having a uh, wonderful day. And uh, I just uh, hope that you are uh, encouraged by spending time in the Word. Uh, We're looking forward to a time in the uh, Word today. Um, If you want to turn in your Bible to the book of John, we are actually going to continue looking at John the Baptist. Um, And where I believe that a lot of us as pastors today really need to draw from the Word. And um, again, I want to... I guess preface with last week in our podcast I don't want it to come across as if it was more of a disparaging thing as it was trying to look at what we need to be doing Um, all of us have flaws all of us have things that uh, we need to repent of and all of us have areas where we do wrong the problem Um, that I'm having right now, I guess, is that when we get so big, and I don't like using that word, but uh, when we get so big that we don't think that our problems are uh, sinful anymore. And unfortunately, it feels like with this idea of these large church pastors or celebrity pastors, however you want to term them, um, they seem like they are... um, above repentance Um, and it's very frustrating because it's playing out in the uh, media right now it's playing out in the public right now and unfortunately I think that the pastor who is being obedient doing what he should be doing is having to take the brunt of a lot of this and uh, I, I just don't think it's it's fair but I do believe that we do have a lot of men out there that are trying to serve and could fall under the umbrella of serving like John the Baptist, just being obedient to their call. Um, but I also believe that sometimes we need reminding of that. And so in John chapter 1, we talked a little bit about uh, John last week, but we're going to get into it a little bit more here. Uh, and I think that <clears throat> we're going to see a really good picture of what I'm talking about concerning this large church pastor mentality, um, this celebrity pastor mentality, and we're going to be able to contrast that here with um, John the Baptist. And in starting in verse 19 of chapter 1 of John, the gospel, it says, This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? Now, it's important here, uh, we don't really get to learn a whole lot from the Pharisees um, because they didn't really do a whole lot that was really right. But one of the things they did here was very important that we can learn from. And that is they saw that John was teaching. They saw that he was gathering a following. And they looked at it and said, okay, we need to investigate that. And see, this is where I think we as Christians, we need to get over that whole judging mentality. And we need to start recognizing that we do need to inspect each other's fruits. We need to start looking at each other's fruit and start uh, saying, okay, you, you know, as the Bible says, you'll be known by your fruits. Jesus said that. And so we need to make sure that, okay, does your fruit align with what it's supposed to? Um, If you call yourself an apple tree, do you produce apples? Uh, In essence, is what we're saying. So if you're a Christian, do you produce the fruit of the Spirit? And so 
the Pharisees and the religious leaders were saying, okay, we're seeing what John's doing here. We're going to investigate because they were considered, I, I, I don't know if this is the proper word, but guardians of the, of the faith um, at that time. And so they were trying to make sure that what John was teaching was aligning with what they knew. And so they asked the question, who are you? What are you doing? Why are you teaching? Um, <clears throat> they're going to get a little more in depth with it. And notice what they, they start saying. Or John says here in verse 20, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. Now, what's important there is this is kind of like a, uh, uh, the way that it's phrased here, John is, is um, very loudly, if you will, denying that he is the Messiah. Uh, when it says he, did, uh, he didn't deny it, but confessed. Um, it's not that he's going to sit down and say, hey, no, 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 that's not me. He's saying, I am absolutely 100% not the Messiah. Now, they said, what then? They asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? The one that's mentioned here in Deuteronomy chapter 18 uh, is the one they're referring to. And he says, no, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? So here they are. And they're probably not doing this in a quiet setting, I would say. But they're just kind of going out there. They're seeing John, and they are um, interrogating is probably the, the not the right word. But they're looking at it and saying, okay, who are you? What are you doing? What authority do you have? Where are you getting this teaching from? Um, they're wanting to see if it lines up with what they have. And they're really questioning him. And so they, they kind of pose, if you will, these options, and John is denying it all. Now, you say, why, why, why are you focused on this? Because here's the thing. This is where I believe John the Baptist really contrasts with today's modern pastor, especially today's modern um, larger church pastor. It seems that... Today's modern pastor of larger churches has a complex with needing notoriety, needing to be noticed, needing to make sure that you have status, you have position, you have um, title, whatever it may be. John the Baptist here has every opportunity to lie and take upon status, but yet it wouldn't be so much a lie to the Pharisees. Now, I'll explain what I mean. The Pharisees honestly didn't know who John the Baptist was. And John is going to remind them here in verse 23. We've not got there yet. <clears throat> but John's going to remind them in verse 23 about what the Old Testament says and that he is fulfilling a prophecy in the Old Testament. So they're not picking up on that. And John has been given the opportunity here to claim himself as the Messiah. He has been given himself opportunity to be claimed as Elijah or as the prophet that was mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18. John has every opportunity to take upon himself this status and to begin this narrative of, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's been, I mean, look, look around, look at my following, look at what's going on, look at uh, all of these different things. Or he could say, you know what? Yeah, I'm Elijah. Uh, the Old Testament said Elijah was going to come back and, and here I am. Or he could have, uh, because there was still a little bit of vagueness, I guess you could say, with the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, that he could have said, yeah, I'm the prophet. And these Pharisees and religious leaders would have known none the otherwise. And he could have been able to have taken that narrative. He could have built himself a massive following. He could have been able to get all the status that he could ever have longed for. And the reason why I say that is because I fear that that's kind of what's happened among the modern day uh, pastor. Is that we seek status so bad that we're willing to... Um, do In essence, I guess you could say do whatever it takes... Whether it's lying, whether it's, uh, you can use terminology like mishandling the truth, however you want to term it, in order to attain that status. 
we spend more time promoting each other's books than we do the Word of God. We spend more time promoting each other than we do anything else. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm fearful that what's happening right now is that we are truly seeking the praises of men and we don't really care about glorifying God. And that's a scary spot to be in. And so what we're learning from John here is that even though John had the opportunity to be able to take upon himself a status that could have just allowed his ministry to just blow up and cause him to just be a... um, in in this period, a celebrity pastor, he chose not to take it. He chose to take integrity and character instead of notoriety. Notice what he says here in verse 23. He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And so John, instead of claiming anything, he actually... <sighs> demoted himself, to use a military term there. He said, hey, I'm just a voice. I don't have status. I don't have notoriety. I'm nothing important whatsoever, but I am pointing to the one who is important. I'm making way or straight the way of the Lord. I am making clear that there is one that is far greater than me that is coming. Now, if we look at it, it would have eventually caught up with John had John lied and John taken on the title of Messiah or Elijah or the prophet because, of course, Jesus would be coming. But that's the beauty of this is that John could have done that and got himself the notoriety and made himself something uh, uh, significant, but he chose not to. He chose the integrity. In essence, he chose what Paul talked about in the book of Timothy when he said that you must be above reproach. And see, these Pharisees literally pitched him a softball. John could have hit a home run right here, and he could have taken upon himself something that would have just uh, taken his name and put it up in lights. But John said, that's not what it's about. That's not what matters. None of that stuff matters. What matters is Jesus. And I am so fearful that we today in our if you want to say our culture of preaching, have forgotten that that's really what matters. What we're doing is we're saying, I've got to make a name for myself. I've got to make sure that people know who I am. I've got to make sure that my church is one of the largest churches in the United States right now because, oh, by the way, what signifies success is numbers. And as I said last week, well, if numbers signify success, Jesus was an utter failure. So numbers don't equate success. You can have all the numbers in the world and and not mean anything. Numbers don't mean anything. And I'm I'm, I'm so sick and tired of it. And I'm just going to tell you, I I say this wholeheartedly, that I'm talking from experience. And can I tell you, I'll just be vulnerable. I I fell prey to it. As a church planner, I can still remember when when I planted uh, the church that God had led us to plant. The association that I was with, one of the things that bothered me is the only thing they cared about was numbers. I mean, it wasn't about support. It wasn't about making sure they come alongside and made sure that the church was healthy. It was, okay, by year one, you should be averaging this right here. By year two, you should be averaging this. By year three, you should be averaging this. And you should be self-sustaining. And you should be this. And you need to make sure that your numbers are consistently growing. But what did that prove? Because we had numbers, did that mean we were successful? Well, can can I just be real vulnerable with you and tell you? Yeah, we had the numbers, but we weren't successful. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. We weren't properly developing leadership to keep up with the numbers that we were growing. What was happening is the church was growing faster than we were able to keep up with. And what happened is we weren't able to develop the leaders to be able to keep up, and guess what? It, it, it got to the point to where it couldn't sustain itself anymore. The foundation wasn't proper. The church, the numbers were getting bigger than the foundation could be able to withstand. And that's when we had some significant problems start to develop within the church. 
Because we had not been able to properly develop leadership. You know why? Because I gave in as a young pastor to this mentality of we got to get numbers, we got to get numbers, we got to get numbers. And so I focused so hard on making sure that we were reaching people that we were having these, you know, outlandish baptism numbers, but we weren't able to develop the leadership properly. And so we ended up having a stalemate to where the church couldn't keep up with what was going on. And guess what? We, we had a lot of issues take place. We had a lot of people that left the church. We had a lot of infighting going on. And so, thank God, the church plant is still successful. The church plant is still going on right now. But it went through a very difficult time. Why? Because there was so much pressure about numbers. There was so much pressure about that's what equates success. And my church plant strategist, who was the one who could get the notoriety, would walk me around and brag about how much that this church plant was doing as if he had something to do with it. And he didn't. But he loved to be able to, to flaunt me around and talk about, look at, what, look at what I've been able to do. I'm walking alongside this church planter and look at these numbers. Well, he didn't have anything to do with it. But again, it made him look good because he was the, the church plant strategist. And so he was able to take all of this uh, attention for it. And for what? Because again, it was all about notoriety. It was all about making sure that he looked good. And so the difficulty that we're finding is that people truly care about the notoriety. They care about making sure that uh, they look good. And John is saying, none of that matters to me. John's saying, hey, you know what? What matters to me most of all is that everything I do points to Jesus. So look at what the Pharisees did here. They already pitched him a softball, and John rejected it. He said, I don't want nothing to do with it. I want everything to point to Jesus. So look at what happens in verse 24. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? So they had already talked to him and said, okay, who are you? They wanted to find out if he was of this status. And he said, I'm not. So they say, okay, well, what authority do you have then? And so John says, I baptize with water in verse 26. Someone stands among you, but you do not know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Now, let's just pump the brakes for a minute. Here is this man, John, who has this massive following. People are getting saved. He's baptizing them. He's gathering this following. His notoriety is spreading because now you got the religious leaders coming out and looking at him. And he's already been asked, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah the prophet? And he says, no, I'm not that. So he got rid of that, that opportunity. So they said, what authority do you have? What do you baptize with? And John goes, he, he doubles down, if you will. John says, not only am I not even significant, because all I am is just a voice crying out in the wilderness, but there's one that I'm talking about, this Jesus that I'm talking about. I'm not even worthy to do the lowest slave's task. What would happen is someone who had some status, if you had visitors come to your house, they would take off the sandals of the guest and they would wash the feet of the guest when they would enter the house because of course their feet would be dirty and that would be a sign of of respect that they would wash the feet well what would happen is uh, this this low slave that would be one of the worst tasks you could have because again you got to remember that these these are not clean areas where these people are walking and so john says i'm not even worthy to unstrap the shoelace of the one that i'm talking about that is how great he really is and I'm nothing compared to him. I'm absolutely nothing. And I'm just going to tell you, I don't see many pastors having that heart and that mentality today. I don't see many pastors whenever you go to certain uh, conferences and things of that nature that are willing to say, hey, you know what? I don't need an introduction. I don't need you to talk about all the credentials I have. I don't need you to talk about how big my church is. I don't need you to talk about all the degrees I have. I just want you to say, hey, here's a guy who's unworthy to unstrap the shoes of Jesus. He's just called to preach the gospel. We don't see that anymore. 
It's one of those things that in order to be able to go somewhere, you have got to be able to have an intro and you've got to make sure that somebody gets up there and does it. And, you know, you want to make sure that you're able to have the clout that uh, you have. And for what? What does it prove? It doesn't prove a single thing in the world. You can sit down because here's the thing. You could be a pastor of one of the largest churches in America today and you could lose it all by tomorrow and then where's your status at then? You mean nothing. You mean absolutely nothing. Go back to some of these men that I've talked about here that have fallen because of their uh, lack of humility and their lack of of being obedient to God's Word and their lack of, of making sure that they're above reproach. They would tout themselves as these pastors of these large mega churches and have tens of thousands of members and they would have radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts. Where are they at now? They have nothing. They have absolutely nothing because they built upon a foundation that was not the rock. They built upon a, an unfirm foundation that was sinking sand that fell apart around them. And it's a scary situation that we find ourselves in when you put all of your eggs in the basket of, I need the notoriety of men in order for me to be able to feel accomplished. And what we have to do is we have to get to the point to where I feel accomplished because I know I'm obedient to the call that God has on my life. Because again, go back to what John said. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. John's call, go back to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light. John had one purpose, and that was to make Jesus known and to make much of Jesus. And my goodness, John done a great job with it. John didn't care about the notoriety. We're going to get to it in the next couple of podcasts. John had disciples that he had been working with, that he had taught, that he had spent time with. The moment they saw Jesus, they left John. How many pastors would be okay with that today, that some of their most prominent church members went and left and done another ministry? They wouldn't like it. They don't want to lose what is theirs. They have control problems. John saying, listen, it's not about me. I'm not building a ministry. It's all about Jesus. And so what we're finding from John is that these are the, this is the way that a lot of pastors need to be today. This is the way that a lot of pastors uh, should be seeking to be obedient, is making much of Jesus, not making much of your church, not making much of your ministry, not making much of your numbers or your books or your TV shows or your radio programs. It's not about that. And no wonder so many people have a struggle trying to figure out about Jesus and figure out whether or not that, uh, you know, the Jesus that we see in Scripture is the same Jesus we're hearing about in churches today. We've confused so many people because they're wondering, who's the real God here? Is it the God who's in heaven or is it the, the, the man behind the pulpit? Because the man behind the pulpit sure seems to be making much of himself. And that's where the scary stuff really starts to come in. So I think what we can do and we can learn from this is that we can see so much of what needs to be done. So I guess what I'm looking at is, yeah, we need to make sure that we address sin and we need to call out sin. We really do. But we also need to be praying for repentance We need to be praying that these men that have fallen, these men that are allowed themselves, because again, uh, Johnny Hunt made a great statement. He said, the moment that you think that you're not going to be able to commit that sin, you better watch out. The moment as a pastor you think you're not going to be the one who commits adultery, the moment you think you're not the one who's going to embezzle funds, the moment you think you're not going to be the one that's going to have an arrogance problem, that could be you. We're not above sin. I promise you this. Temptation will come. And that's why we have to be on guard. That's why we have to have accountability. That's why we need to have men in our lives that will hold us accountable and be able to point out things in our lives that aren't right. And so what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that we're being obedient in every facet of our lives. And so what I, I, what I want us to do is instead of trying to make sure that we constantly are pointing out 
all the things that are flawed and are wrong, that we're able to sit down and spend time in prayer by being able to focus on uh, who is in need of prayer, who is dealing with all of the things that they're dealing with, and be able to say, okay, we need to we need to pray for them. If they've fallen, we need to pray for their repentance. If they have uh, allowed themselves to fall prey to sin, we need to pray that they get restored. But now listen, there's consequences. It doesn't mean that just because they've prayed and they've asked for repentance that all of a sudden they're able to just jump right back into ministry. That's where, again, uh, ministry is not a right, it's a privilege. And so a lot of these men, that's the reason why they're so fearful of losing their ministry, is because they realize if they do, they may not be able to get it back again. And so that's why there's a lot of unrepentance and sweeping things under the rug and things of that nature. So let's spend time praying for these men to repent and let them realize that it's, it's more important to be obedient than it is to, be, uh, to have notoriety. And so what I encourage you with is to continue studying about John the Baptist. And I also want to make sure you pray for your pastor. Make sure that you're uh, looking at the life of your pastor. Hey, make sure when he's preaching, you're following along with Scripture. Go back home and study the Scripture. Make sure that what he preaches aligns with, with Scripture. Uh, so that way, you know, you can be able to say, hey, my pastor studies. He makes sure that he knows the Word of God and he's preaching the Word of God. And encourage your pastor. Encourage your pastor by letting him know, hey, I appreciate the time you spend in the Word. I appreciate the time that you spend making sure that you feed the flock properly and you pray for the flock. Uh, and and make sure that you encourage him because I'm going to tell you, pastors have a tough time trying to fight against the notoriety and the status and things of that nature. Pray for your pastor to be a, a man like John the Baptist so that he can stand firm when the pressures come. So I pray that this has encouraged you. I pray it's given you some food for thought. Uh, next week, we'll jump back into a little bit more of John the Baptist. So I encourage you to study, especially John chapter 1, verses 29 um, uh, through 42. We'll kind of be there over the next uh, next podcast. I don't know how much of that we'll get in there, but it'll be something you can uh, be able to look at. And uh, I encourage you to uh, be able to, uh, again, pray for your pastor. Uh, uh, find somebody to be an accountability partner with you. Be in the Word. Make sure you spend time sharing the gospel with others. Most of all, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I encourage you, find somebody who's a Bible-believing Christian and talk to them and ask them some questions about it. And if you got time, and would, would uh, I would appreciate it if you would write a review and rate uh, this podcast to help it get out there to a few more people. Uh, share this podcast on your social media platform uh, so that others may be able to hear it if you think it'll be an encouragement to them. Uh, pray that you have a blessed, wonderful day and week, and Lord willing, we'll be able to get back next week and continue uh, looking a little bit more at John the Baptist.